let's do a word association game this morning. Now, for this to work, you've got to participate, all right? Uh, so I'm going to say a word, and you will respond with the first thing that comes to your mind, all right? Keep it clean. We'll start with an easy one. Bible. All right? Very good. Uh, hobby. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. Hobby lobby, right? Uh, okay. Uh, news media. I couldn't understand. Crooked. Liberal. Okay. Yeah. I did expect that one. Uh, vocation. Okay. Vacation. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Disney. Okay. Politician. I, I didn't I didn't hear a lot of you answer. Oh. <laughs> you know, as I thought through uh, these different perspectives that we all have, we all have an opinion, especially when it comes to the news media outlets and to politicians. It's interesting, and I did this as kind of a mock poll for other people. Uh, they didn't know where I was going with it. Uh, but I asked several people kind of through the week, um, even my barber, and he's like, look, don't use me in your sermon. I said, I won't. So uh, I'm not going to tell you what he said. But, you know, it's interesting to me that in the public eye, the news media in general is viewed as biased. And the word politician has almost become synonymous with deceiver, manipulator, or liar. People's cynical view of the news media outlets and of politicians today, I think, offers a telling barometer of the absence of truth in our land. We're living in a truth drought. And this portion of the Sermon on the Mount this morning ought to make politicians tremble. And we laugh, but in reality, if we consider our own truthfulness and integrity of speech as examined by the Lord... I think we would tremble as well. And so though Jesus' words are simple, and in our minds, not maybe as serious as murder, or as lust, or as adultery, let's not be quick to pass over any portion of God's word. This morning, I want us to see Jesus' commands I want us to see Jesus commands radical truthfulness in speech from those who know him. For those who are Christ's followers, Jesus commands a radical truthfulness of speech. And so Jesus is teaching. It, it deals with the, the mundane and the minutia of daily living. Even to the intent of our words and conversations that we have in others, Jesus has something to say to us. Something that we need to hear. Because every word we speak matters. I think it was Paul Tripp that I heard give a talk on our words. I don't remember where. And he said, we never speak an, an idle word. Every word we speak carries weight. 
It goes in one direction or it goes in the other. But every word we speak carries weight and it has intention. And I think that's true. So this morning, I want us to see that we're called to radical truthfulness. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, we continue in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. We will go from verse 33 through verse 37. I invite you to follow along in Matthew 5, 33, as I read. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. If you recall, Jesus is teaching on the life of surpassing righteousness. This, this call for all who are kingdom citizens, all who claim to be followers of Christ, he makes this, this tremendous statement saying that we need to have a surpassing or an exceeding righteousness in chapter 5, verse 21, that exceeded the scribes, and the Pharisees. And so this life of surpassing righteousness goes beyond our actions, but what he's getting at is it goes to the, the depth of our heart. And so I need us to see from the beginning this morning that the life of surpassing righteousness is only possible through faith in Jesus Christ's atonement of man's sin. And then the accompanying power of the Holy Spirit as the believer walks in deep obedience to God's word. This is how we live righteously. And so in this fourth of six examples of surpassing righteousness, Jesus focuses the microscope in on our motives and the heart that fuels our words and our actions. For he says that which comes out of the heart is what defiles a man. And so in verse 33 through 36, we see first that radical truthfulness requires a walk of integrity. Radical truthfulness requires a walk of integrity. In verse 33, he says again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, this is a true statement. There's nothing wrong with this statement. Nothing bad about it. It's honorable to keep one's word. And even better, if when we make a vow to the Lord, we keep our vow to the Lord. But hear me out in what Jesus is saying here. This isn't a direct quote of any Old Testament law. Jesus is actually quoting a common rabbinic paraphrase that's used from texts like Leviticus 19.12, which says, You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Write down Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. And Deuteronomy 23, 21. Numbers 32, Deuteronomy 23, 21. These are some other texts of rabbinic paraphrase that gets at what Jesus is saying here in verse 33. You have heard that it was said to those of old. This is what has been said. This has been the tradition. 
But then he goes on to say in verse 34, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. You see, there was a problem with the way that the rabbis, the Pharisees, the scribes, they were interpreting the law of God. They interpreted God's law with a loophole, allowing for dishonesty in their dealings with others. And this isn't to be the way of God's people. And the reason is because it's not God's way. He is not deceptive or manipulative. And so God's people, as, as chosen people, they were to represent God to the nations. Above all, the leaders of Israel. They were to be a light in the midst of darkness. They were to represent the truth of God in the midst of a landscape of false gods. They were to represent who the true God was. But before we castigate the religious leaders, I think we need to ask the question of our own lives. Do we do the same thing? Do we look for loopholes so that we might justify our words or actions? You know, because they said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So, yeah, in dealing with God, we need to perform what we have sworn to the Lord. We need to we need to carry out that which we have made a promise to do before God. But this didn't carry over into the promises they made with other people. You see, the rabbis taught people must fulfill their vows, but not necessarily oaths unless the name of God was invoked. And so they distinguished between a vow and an oath in this way. A vow was a promise that they made to God. They had to keep their vow, the promise they made to God. But an oath, it was only a promissory statement made between two parties. And so they didn't have to keep that oath. But here was the catch. They recognized that if they made an oath and they used a formula invoking God's name, then that oath would then become a binding vow. And so if they broke that oath or vow, they were guilty before God and they would receive God's judgment. You with me so far? This is, this is how the Pharisees and the scribes were interpreting the law. Stott points out in his commentary that the scribes and the Pharisees interpreted swearing falsely as having to do with profanity, though, not as having to do with perjury. And so this, is, this helps our understanding of, of why they twisted it. They, they twisted it and they found this loophole that said, I must be honest and integral before God, but before other men, not so much. I can break my promises. Zechariah warned against this in Zechariah 8.16. He said, these are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Also, let no one devise evil in your heart against another, and do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. Now, it's with this context in mind that Jesus tells the disciples in verse 34, make no oath at all. Jesus isn't categorically banning the taking of oaths. Instead, he's putting forth a, a new and a better way. As righteous people who are filled, as his followers who are filled with his spirit, the spirit of truth, his followers then are to live with an unashamed truthfulness. In other words, Jesus' followers don't need to take oaths to make their words more credible. 
because they are truthful people. In fact, that they are radically truthful people. And so Jesus condemns oath-taking for two reasons. The first reason he condemns oath-taking is because oaths are blasphemous and they usurp God's authority. We see this in verses 32, 34 through 36. Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, right? Or by earth, it's God's footstool. Or by Jerusalem, it's a city of the great king pointing to God. Then he even goes a step further. Do not even take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. In other words, you can't even control the days of your youth. You can't control the hair that even grows on your head. And so he's challenging this oath that would seek to usurp God's authority. The oath formulas that Jesus counters, they they weren't considered binding by rabbinical interpretation of the law. And so Jesus' challenge is that even these non-binding oaths were in actuality binding because God is the one in authority over heaven, over earth, over the city of Jerusalem, even over one's own head. Now, what's the point of an oath? The point of an oath, it's to communicate trustworthiness. It goes on to say, I, I pledge myself... I'm so, uh, I'm so certain that I'm going to do this, and I want you to know that, that I'm pledging myself based upon this oath. And if I fail to uphold my word, may whatever it is I've pledged be destroyed, be taken away. So an, an example of the technicality of the oath formulas would be if a person made an oath and they were facing Jerusalem then that oath was binding because they were facing the city of Jerusalem where God, God's presence dwelt. But if the person made an oath by the city of Jerusalem and was not facing the city of Jerusalem, then that oath would not be binding. And so these were the small technicalities that Pharisees and scribes lived with and the nuances of the law. We might best understand this if we think about reading a contract before we sign up for a service agreement or before we purchase maybe a car, right? You, you're sitting there with a contract in front of you, and unless you're a lawyer, you just can't understand all the technicalities of this document that are before you, right? We're, we're familiar with this. And so Jesus is challenging the deception and the manipulative nature of the religious leaders. In fact, Jesus addressed this very issue in Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 through 22. Matthew 23, 16 through 22. He says to the religious leaders. Woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that is made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by 
heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And down in verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside may also be clean. It goes on in verse 27, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You see, the challenge that Jesus is getting at, the heart of the matter, really, deals with our motives internally. It deals with the heart and why we would want to deceive others. And it deals with being a people of truth as God's people. God's people are to be a people of truth. When we think about this, when we take this line of thought and and consider oaths, I, I think we often return to memories of our childhood years. When we think about oath-taking, we kind of think about the empty promises maybe we used to make as children. When we do something wrong, we instantly tell our sibling, look, don't, don't tell, I promise I'll do such and such, right, if you don't tell mom or dad what I did. Or, in order to get our way, we use extreme language. We even make extreme promises that we don't intend to keep. One that I've heard is, I'll give you $2 if you let me play the iPad first, right? Never intends to keep that kind of a pledge, right? So we we learn even from an early age how to twist and distort and manipulate people so that we get what we want. And so Jesus is calling out the religious leaders and he's challenging, he's challenging his disciples to be men, women of truth. Quarles points out in the familiar oath taking of a child, I cross my heart and hope to die. What? You've all said it then. You know, you know what we're talking about. So the, the, we, we didn't understand what we were saying when we'd make this, this oath or this vow. We were, we were inferring though, I'm so committed to what I'm saying, I'm giving you permission to torture me by sticking a needle in my eye and then... If I'm not being truthful, I hope to even die. Pretty serious for kids to say, right? Jesus is saying that these oaths that are taken in some way usurp God's authority because they deviate from all that is right and all that is true. But there's a second reason Jesus condemns oath-taking. And that second reason is because it's a mode of deception. The common practice of oath-taking had become a way of deception. It was like a legal contest to see who could, who could craft the greatest, the greatest oath and manipulate and twist and still have a loophole to get out. So oaths were invoked to make people believe something that they never intended to do so that they could get away with it. It was manipulative. So this really addresses, I think, the motive of our hearts. Jesus gets at this in John's gospel when he challenged the religious leaders of the day in John 8, 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
Pharisee is teaching his disciples that they don't need to make oaths for their words to be credible. They're to be characterized by such integrity and radical truthfulness that oaths are unnecessary. This ought to be the same for us believers. We ought to be characterized by such radical truthfulness that when we speak, people believe. People understand that when we speak, we mean what we're going to do. So when our motives are pure, we'll have no reason to manipulate or deceive others with words of trickery. And so friends, as we follow Christ, we're called to a life of honesty. We're called to a life of integrity, not a life of manipulation and deceit. We're called to walk in the spirit of truth and pursue that which is right, that which is just, and that which is truthful. We're called to a life of radical truthfulness. And since this is our calling, let us diligently seek by divine aid to live out Christ's teaching. So if Christ commands this high calling of radical truthfulness from his disciples in motive and in word, then he also commands a high calling of radical truthfulness in our speech in verse 37 when he says, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. In other words, what Jesus is saying, we must say what we mean and mean what we say. Anything more than this, he says, comes from the evil one or comes from evil. And so Jesus is dealing with the very practical application of our speech. What does it mean that we don't take oaths? It doesn't mean that we should follow the lead of Anabaptists or of the Quakers who refuse to take oaths even in the court of law. Jesus himself, when placed under oath in Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 and 64, responded to Pilate with the truthful answer to the question of his identity. So the point that Jesus is making is we're truthful people who are to let our yes be yes and our no be no. We simply say what we mean and we mean what we say. James applies Jesus's words in James 5:12 this way. He says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Simply put, Jesus is saying, stop lying. Stop deceiving. From the current political landscape to daily conversations that we have with co-workers and neighbors, moral relativism has become the fabric of life. In other words, right, what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. People are cynical about who can even be trusted. The presidential race, God help us, the presidential race is a primary example of sinful reality that we find ourselves in. There's been no shortage of of sound bites and clips pointing out the lies and the inconsistent positions of the candidates as we've led up to this election season over the last year, even two years. The political landscape in our country is riddled with the disease of lying and deception. In fact, perjury is the new way of the higher offices of the land. 
and more so, many men and women who are sorely lacking in integrity in their own lives want us to believe that they have the answers to change our country. But the reality is, we know better. There's no man or woman who, when elected to office, will change the moral tide of our nation. And the reason we know this is because the brokenness of humanity is, is too deep for a governmental fix. The law couldn't govern God's people to fix the brokenness of humanity. There needed to be a change. There needed to be a transformation. And church, this is where we come in. God has called the church to be a light to the nations. God has called the church to be transformed by the Holy Spirit of God who indwells us. So the brokenness of humanity needs to be fixed, but it won't come through the government. The remedy to the problem of manipulation and deceit and moral depravity is to speak truthfully, Jesus is saying. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Anything else, anything more than this comes from evil or comes from the evil one. Jesus is saying the disciple of Christ is one who is altogether different from the world. That we're actually not under the power and the sway of the evil one. Because Jesus has saved us and he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's placed his spirit within us as a deposit and seal of our inheritance unto unto eternity. And so we're called to be otherworldly. We're called to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is the promise of the Beatitudes. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're to walk then by the spirit and not practice deceit. But we're to be champions of the truth and all that is right and all that is truthful and all that is just. And I believe that there are some today who are hungry and who are thirsty for truth. What a great opportunity for the church to shine the light and the hope of the gospel. Into the midst, in the midst of the darkness that is covering our land. To the students, I would challenge the students to recognize that walking with Christ will involve making some hard choices. When your friends are lying to their parents so they can do something they shouldn't, depend on Christ in you to strengthen you. Be a person of honor. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. When your friends are seeking to entice you, as the the Proverbs say, they want to drag you into trouble so that you follow them and you're kind of torn inside about being shunned and doing the right thing, depend on Christ in you to strengthen you and let your no be no. When you have an opportunity, students, to copy or to cheat on your test or to help a friend out by letting him or her copy from you, it's time to take a stand for radical truthfulness. And to let your no be no. And when your friends notice this change that's in your life, and they say, what makes you so different? Well, it's time to take a stand. And to let the truth of the gospel be known. To say, well, Jesus has transformed me. He's changed me. A preacher from the late 1800s said in a letter to his father, I always try, at least I think I do, to be truthful. But at the same time, I tell a great many lies. I think this sums up each of us 
we try to be truthful. We try to let our yes be yes and our no be no, but deep down, we realize and recognize that we say things that are often slighted so that we look just a little bit better. We're painted in just a little bit better of a light. We misrepresent the facts just enough in order to make ourselves look good or in order to get our own way. In fact, it's kind of scary how easily we embellish the truth oftentimes. From something as simple as a fishing story where I caught more fish than everybody else uh, to something as, as heavy as shifting the blame in a responsibility that you should have taken care of, but you're not willing to take the blame and let it rest on you. You see, we're all susceptible to doing it. But we must realize that it's deceptive and it goes against God's character and against God's nature, and it can ruin your witness, believer. So when it comes to work and to business dealings, we need to ask the question, are we being truthful? Are we being men and women who represent God as truthful people? Are we acting righteously towards others from the heart, from deep obedience? Another good example is that no one knows what you itemize for taxes. Right? This is integrity. And so we're called to have integrity and be truthful people. And so, church, I think our interaction with others also plays into this. As a people of truth, we, we seek to build others up. A people of truth will seek to expand community with others. A people of truth will seek to dismantle untruthfulness by walking in unity. I think the righteous, truthful living of God's people shines a gospel light as a witness to the nations, and to our communities, and to our co-workers, and in our homes. And so radical truthfulness will set the believer apart from the world and will yield power in the believer's life. So believer, if we're to be a people of radical truthfulness, we must keep God's word ever before us and apply it to our lives. We must seek as God's children to walk by the spirit in obedience to the spirit, which he has made to dwell in us. We must guard our hearts and our minds, even as Job makes this covenant with his eyes to guard his heart and his mind, his eyes. We should make covenant with God that he would and seek that he would guard our heart and our mind. We must seek to be men and women of truth. And this is the heart of what Jesus is calling us to. So, friend, are you known for truth? Are you a person who lets your yes be yes and your no be no? Do others know that you're a follower of Christ, if not because of your proclamation of the hope of the gospel because of the truthfulness with which you speak and the concern you share for others? I pray this morning that as we consider our own hearts before the Lord, as we consider our motives, that we will give much thought and consideration to the words of our mouth, that they would match the meditations of our hearts. 
this morning, you spend some time before the Lord as the worship team comes to lead us in a time of response. And I want you to know that I'll be standing down front. Our elders will be standing down front. And if you would like to respond in such a way as to just ask and seek for prayer, you're welcome to come and to do that this morning. We'd be honored and love to pray for you. You respond as the Lord leads. Let me pray for us. Father, as we consider your word, Lord, we all must confess that we are sinners, that we ourselves are liars and deceivers and manipulators. But God, this is not the way that we want to be. Oh, Lord, we desire to give a truthful testimony of your spirit who dwells within us. And so, God, would you continue to shape us, continue, oh, Father, to transform our hearts and minds to know you, to walk faithfully, to represent your kingdom as ambassadors here on earth, your kingdom of truth. God, would you equip us and strengthen us this morning? Lord, would you break our hearts over our sin? And Lord, would you renew us according to the counsel of your word and the hope of your gospel and the hope of eternal life? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?